Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Vikingology. The art and science of the Viking Age. I'm Thing One, CJ Adrian. <laughs> and I'm Thing Two, Terry Barnes. And today we have a very special guest. Yes, we do. We're very excited to welcome Dr. Matthew Panessi of Ohio Dominican University to tell us all about monasteries. Ooh, monasteries. Most people would not imagine that to be a very exciting topic, but we are a Viking podcast. <laughs> yeah, right? We'll, we'll get there. There, there. We'll we'll promise there's some sexy stuff in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, could, we could call it that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Monasteries were important, as we know, right, for the raiding in the West. And so uh, Matthew will help us figure out why that is. All right, well, let's dive in. Okay, great. So... Matt, you specialize in Frankish monasteries, and that is, um, you know, we're talking about a period of time, mostly 8th and 9th century, as I understand it, correct? That's correct, yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but this is smack in the middle of the Viking Age, and particularly the 9th century is pretty intense right. in Frankia for Viking activity. And so we wanted to give the audience a little bit of a sense about why these places known as monasteries would have been attractive to Vikings. But so we back up a little bit and say, what is a monastery, Matt? And uh, what, what got you interested in them? Right. Well, it's funny, my, um, my sort of uh, academic concentration, I'm not saying it was accidental, but um, you know, it was not a kind of a direct route when I first started studying the Middle Ages seriously. Um, you know, I didn't think, oh, monks, I want to do monks in monasteries. In fact, way back in the day, you know, I, I thought that, you know, the Middle Ages was just all knights and battles and kings and, you know, a lot of political history, high Middle Ages. Um, I didn't think I would be within kind of the um, the misty centuries of, you know, continental France, um, you know, it was, it was sort of a gradual process. And in fact, a lot of my, my concentration and focus was, was, was directed by my trepidation. Um, and by that, I mean, when it came, when it comes to research, I don't like feeling overwhelmed. I don't like feeling overwhelmed by the sheer amount of sources and languages and, you know, I, I, I like to keep things manageable. So a lot of my interest in the early Middle Ages was, was driven by, you know, what at the time I thought was a scarcity of sources and the fact that most of those sources were Latin. And in fact, I did kind of enjoy kind of um, studying a period that, you know, maybe could be described as a little less centralized. So um, in terms of kind of my chronological boundaries and, and why I'm kind of in the 8th century, the 8th century, the 8th and 9th century is kind of where I drew the line. I said, my advisors kept kept kind of encouraging me, if you ever want a job, if you ever want a job, you need to, you know, show your versatility, you need to, you know, you can't be stuck in late antiquity, you can't be stuck in the early Middle Ages, you have to be marketable. Now, um, you know, at, at my university, I don't think anyone on my hiring committee would have known the difference between early, you know, and, yeah. and late medieval, um, you know, Carolingian, Merovingian. These aren't distinctions that kind of exist um, at some smaller universities. Um, but no, so my my chronological focus on the early Middle Ages is, is really just kind of a, 
an offshoot of, you know, I, I at the time wanted wanted to I not feel overwhelmed. Um, and and also I, I kind of like um, exploring, uh, you know, mysteries. And, and I thought, well, the early Middle Ages, there's there's lots of gaps and lots of blanks that need to be filled. And and so that's kind of um, what uh, what put my focus there. As far as monasticism, I guess I was I've always been interested in in spirituality and and just kind of how um, you know countercultural uh, you know the monastic life um, is and was and um, you know so I became interested in 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 monks uh, right from the beginning right uh, with Saint Anthony of Egypt and and just kind of how they would renounce the world would move into the desert. Um, and live in community and live accord uh, and and not and not um, uh, not honestly be in control of of their own lives, but they would you know in in obedience and humility kind of give that over to the authority of of, of a leader or an abbot and a rule. So um, I became very interested in monastic spirituality, the history, uh, church history, and so those two. Those two things kind of merged. I said, okay, eighth and ninth century, we'll we'll stay in France, and you know, I'll look at the lives of monks, and um, uh, and that's kind of how it started. So, okay, and then the Vikings are going to come at that period of time and make your life a living hell. What would you right. want? To and <laughs> you know, it's funny when I, when 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 you ask me to be on, and I'm and I'm always happy to join, and you know, what what little I know, I'm happy to share. Um, I've tried to pretend the Vikings weren't arriving, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, everything's good. Everything's, you know, to me, the Carolingians of France, you know, Carolingians um, in some respect represent the first time where we, where we have, you know, a, a period of great stability and, and centralization, at least on the surface, you know, and, and then there's these reports of these Northmen, you know, oh, Northmen are appearing here and there. Well, well, that's that's kind of mid-ninth century. I could almost kind of cut things off. That's where the Carolingians are beginning to recede. I'll just I've tried, no, I've tried not to confront them. I've, I've <laughs> tried um, not to confront, um, uh, you know, the the Vikings much in my research. Uh, and if it weren't for one or two letters written by Alcuin of York, mm. they really wouldn't intersect at all with. Um, my research, you know. Okay, I'll... so Matt, I've shown this to you before and CJ has seen it as well, but I'm just going to quickly share the screen so our audience can get a sense of the, the utter chaos that we're talking about here. I, ju I just um, want to add, you know, the idea that you, you're you ignoring or trying to push off the, the Vikings a little bit is how very Louis the Pious of you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. You know, I I do the same now. You know, when it comes to managing, my, you know, a household, and I don't do a whole lot of managing of my household. But I have three teenage boys, and you know, honestly, sometimes I prefer not to know what's going on. You know, just for <laughs> just for my sanity. So similarly in my research, I guess. So look yeah. at all you know this map, right? I mean, every one of those arrows represents Viking activity in France at the time. Uh, well, just the ninth century, actually, which was the busiest as far as Frankie is concerned. And you know, but look at, I mean, it's coastlines, it's up the River Rhine highways. I mean, they're everywhere. And 
also, as you know, other scholars I've heard do, I, I'll do the same thing here. I mean, it's like it's you sort of abstract to look at this map, but you have to understand that each one of those arrows represents, you know, utter terror, literally, that is going on in in many of these communities. So um, the Scandinavians were wreaking plenty of havoc uh, at the time. So. Um, so, so describe, I mean, so what is a monastery? I mean, who's, who's living there? I mean, you said monks, but so like, what are these people doing there? Why are these things, why do these institutions exist? Yeah, um, these, these institutions serve, um, you know, I, I, I teach the subject, I research the subject, and, um, you know, just kind of as a, uh, as a preamble in some respect, you know, when I first, you know, got into medieval history, I, I was fascinated by just how differently people lived. That's what drew me to the Middle Ages. You know, you know yeah. we live in an age of, well, beyond gunpowder. We live in the age of electricity and modern conveniences. And well, you know, what 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 interests me, uh, you know, many decades ago and still to this day um, is an age where, where people live according to different principles and um, uh, just different lifestyles. You know, I found, you know, I found that attractive, but now um, what's beginning to fascinate me is just how little things have changed. And so when you ask me just what is a monk, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, do I, do I answer that from the modern perspective or the medieval perspective? Because in some respect, the, the compulsion, what draws people to the monastic lifestyle, I think is it exists as much today as it did then. Um, you know, we we are in workaday world. You know, we are our lives are filled with distractions. It's so easy to just lose track of a whole bunch of years and wonder what have yeah. I been doing? I, I've you know I'm I've been involved in the grind. I I haven't taken a moment to concentrate on what's important or even identify what's important in my life. And sometimes people like to slow down and maybe even reevaluate the direction that they're going in because. Because with all of these distractions, it's hard to prioritize what truly we should be prioritizing in our lives. A lot of people feel spiritually just empty, you know, and or they were led to believe that the modern world or the medieval world, for that matter, the secular world, maybe is the best word for it. Yeah. The world's kind of redundant to say it that way. But yeah. um, but that society, uh, if you you follow this plan, you know, you will you know, reap the American dream or the medieval dream. You'll have your house, your picket fence, your security, your stability. And maybe, maybe it doesn't deliver. Or if it delivers, maybe it doesn't give you the satisfaction that was promised you. So um, I think now and and very much back then, people, you know, were, were kind of um, reevaluating what's important. And what is important to a lot of people was their spiritual development that tends to get lost when we're distracted. So monasticism is a movement that develops um, in response to people wanting to become closer to God and wanting to be able to pray and contemplate um, and focus on, you know, what is most important and what's most important, um, you know, for a lot of uh, medieval monks was their spiritual progression and the achievement of salvation. And they they wanted to do it free of distraction. They found that society pulls them down in a lot of ways, you know. And I when I teach this to my students, I, you know, I, I'm 
kind of facetious a little bit, were it not for you, were it not for you people, I wouldn't have such a hard time, you know, <laughs> uh, developing spiritually. I wouldn't have these temptations. You know, if I didn't see what my neighbor was accumulating, you know, I wouldn't feel envy or maybe greed. You know, if I if I didn't see people who I, I found, you know, physically attracted, I wouldn't feel lust. If if I wasn't driving to work and you cut me off, I wouldn't feel wrath. I mean, all these temptations, the carnal sins, it means sins of the flesh, you know, they all have their root in society, you know, yeah. and 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 pride, pride being the worst of them, that you can live your life according to your way and not God's way. Well, you know, in order to kind of get back on track. You know, it was it was determined, and Saint Anthony of Egypt was kind of the first in the Western tradition. Um, you could say who who did this, although um, eremitism, being a hermit, was definitely not unknown at the time. Saint Anthony, you know, he he had everything going for him. He he was quite well off, and um, but he felt empty. He felt unfulfilled, and. Um, he was passing, actually, I think he went in the church and, and he heard the, the gospel account of, of the rich man who was told to go sell all of his things and, and follow. Um, and so that's what Anthony did. And Anthony went into the desert and renouncing the world is kind of the, the first step that a monk would take. Renouncing all ties to society in a lot of ways allows a monk, you know, to progress beyond, you know, all of the distractions and temptations and focus on what is most important in life. Now, of course, there are other elements. And, and I should say right now, St. Anthony failed. St. Anthony failed, as, as did every single experiment of monasticism. The word itself means the solitary life. Well, show me a monk who lives by him or herself. You know, you can't, you can't go anywhere and not encounter people. You also can't go anywhere and not be pulled back into the world, you know? So, and, and you, you, you almost necessarily um, connect with people as part of the human condition. So St. Anthony kind of developed a compromise, you know, he, and in, in St. Anthony's case, and this is fourth century, in St. Anthony's case, his problem was stories of his great, um, you know, the the his great victories over demons and temptation they were somehow getting back to the world and people wanted to follow him yeah. they wanted to kind of do what he was doing um and the and so he had students you know and would be solitaries follow him into the desert and he kept sort of saying okay and you could imagine him sighing you know fine here you want some teachings i'll give you some teachings okay is everyone good you know what to do I'm going to go a little bit further into the desert now. See you later. Don't follow me. <laughs> went a little bit further into the desert and they followed him. Well, then he said, okay, here you go. Here's some more, but we're good now. And see ya. And he, and he kept going. And the problem is you can only go halfway into the desert before you start leaving it. You know, you can't go anywhere in the world and, and truly live a solitary life. So Anthony came up with a compromise that, they would physically distance themselves from society, but they would live in common. These would be people who shared their the common goals and aspirations to develop spiritually, to live lives of prayer. Um, and 
eventually in this tradition, um, you know, they developed rules to follow. You know, it's not enough to, you know, renounce the world. You need structure. Um, you need rules and regulations, and especially you kind of need a program to follow that isn't of your design, because ultimately what monasticism seeks to achieve is cultivate humility. You know, humility is what will allow us to overcome our own pride and live the life God wants us to. Um, in, in monastic communities, the, the, the primary occupation is prayer, and the day is divided into various hours of prayer and singing praise to God using the, the book of the Psalms, using the Psalter is primarily what monks were occupied in. But you had to sustain these communities. So work was uh, a necessary component. And if you have to sustain these communities through work, well, you would want financial independence. You did not want to depend on the outside world. So you would need to maybe sell goods and services, you know, so so monasteries were never, you know, very far away from the world in some respects because uh, monasteries were dependent on them. Um, so essentially, you know, that's what a monk aspired to do: to 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 live a life closer to God, to to kind of suppress the 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 carnality in their lives and the propensity to 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 be tempted and to and to sin so that they could almost free their soul to, to kind of rise and ascend to the contemplation of the divine. Okay, so I'll push back a little bit then on the renunciation and especially, you know, of the world, right? Uh, especially in the context of Vikings, right? Because, of course, the, the, the story about the Viking raids ostensibly on many of these places was that they're easy targets for wealth portable wealth. And sometimes, as we know, that takes the form of like the actual monks themselves, right? Because the Vikings were slavers. And so it's, it's captive human beings. But we also know that it's a lot of other blingy stuff, right? The, 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 the golds and the silvers and the manuscripts that can be ransomed and all of this. And so then how do you reconcile renunciation of worldly things with the fact that these things, these places, these little yeah. communities seem to be targets for like, ooh, wealth, let's go right. there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the Middle Ages, you know, m monasteries, that it was the, the wealthiest institution, you know, uh, monasteries controlled most of most of the arable land. And um, in fact, you know, monasteries, we talk about how monks sought to renounce the world while the world followed monasteries. In fact, cities and towns developed around monasteries. Um, monasteries controlled a vast amount of wealth. A monk wouldn't own any personal property. You know, what a monk used was, was distributed according to necessity. Now, one of the one of one of my research um, specialties is monastic rules, regulations, and customaries you frequently see in this attempts to delineate what a monk should use, which tells you that monks were probably, you know, had access to more than yeah. more than that. Um, you know, so, but so collectively a, a monastery might be quite wealthy, um, but monks individually would not own anything in their possession, you know, not even a bar of soap or ointment, not, not, not the slippers, not the, not the cloaks or the robes, um, you know, that would be monastic property and it would be theirs to use. 
But yes, the community had wealth. Um, so it's interesting when it comes to the Vikings, um, you know, were monasteries just these undefended treasure houses? You know, that's kind of the issue. Um, you know, and I think in a lot of respect, our understanding of monasteries being a target of the Vikings might have its genesis in the, you know, attack on Lindisfarne. You know, when, when monasteries attacked Britain, um, they, of course, went for coastal regions, and uh, first at least. And monasteries, because of a monk's kind of desire to renounce the world, um, monasteries tended to be located far away from, you know, urban centers. They might have a village around them. But, um, and so I think it, it it's sort of an easy assumption or supposition to just assume because of how earth shattering that attack was. You know, I mentioned Alcuin of York and 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 how um, he was told of this attack on Lindisfarne, and he and we don't we don't actually have a copy of his letter. It, it, the letter I think was sent by from a bishop uh, describing what happened, and we don't have that description of the attack um, that Alcuin received. He responds to it, but right. he's devastated. He's devastated, and in fact, in some ways, he likens it. He doesn't say it specifically, but when I read his description of it, I kind of think of Saint Augustine. And, and his response to the fall of Rome in 410, um, 410 AD, that it just, it changed the world. You know, it just resonated. Um, you know, so if I take that letter and I take what happened at Lindisfarne, you know, I, I, I kind of just assume, you know, Vikings, monasteries, coastal regions, this was an, a, a deliberate objective that Vikings might have been almost lured. Why? Because monasteries had wealth. Well, what is the what is the form of monastic wealth that we assume? The very first thing are the vessels used in the liturgy. You know, the 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 liturgy of the mass. We're talking the the chalices and the patents and the uh, ciboria, um, which necessarily have to be made of precious metals. You know, I, I honestly I don't think that's changed in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, you know, they that that the vessels used in the liturgy of the mass and the consecration of, of the bread and the wine, um, they need to be precious. They, they can't, you can't just use, you know, a, a, a beautiful piece of crystal, you know, it needs to be silver or metal. And, you know, at least that's my understanding of it, um, which of course, which was the case in the middle ages. So these would be valuable and monks in addition to prayer would be at mass, would be, um, you know, uh, participating in these liturgies. So we know that monasteries had that. Monasteries might have had a certain amount of, you know, quote unquote, cash um, for transactions, you know, to acquire the goods that they needed. They did not produce everything they needed. Um, they, they sometimes invited crafts people into the monastery, but if there was a village nearby, they would go out and, and acquire the goods that they needed. Um, so there might have been some store of money, but likely not very much. Another type of wealth we think of when we think of monasteries, and I've and I've noticed, you know, you know, uh, I, I run an Instagram account, which you which 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 you know, 
And all I do is I do kind of silly humor on it. And it's amazing that anybody is even interested in humor mixed with the Middle Ages, but it's 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 a it's a small, small, small niche of humor. Monty Python, man, come on. Okay, you know what? Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, they're they uh they were kind of um <laughs> standard that I'm you know try to that Aspired. I'm inspired. <laughs> so um so we um so on this account, you know, if if I make a if I if I make some sort of comment that I think is funny, you know, it might get some likes. But there is one if ever I'm out of ideas. And imagine that what I did was just driven by likes. If if all I did, if I didn't have a job, if I wasn't, uh, you know, teaching at a university um, and I was dependent on social media for my my lifestyle, uh, my lifestyle, my life, you know, um, if that was my money source of my life and all I wanted to do, all I needed to do was get likes everything I would post would be about the Library of Alexandria. Everything. <laughs> everything. The, the world is just fascinated, fascinated with the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I, I don't, it's, it's not that I don't know why that is. It's, it's, we all have this nostalgia about the Library of Alexandria, which is funny because we weren't around then. In fact, you know, scholars don't even know really when it was destroyed, to what extent it was destroyed, how much of it was destroyed. But everyone seems to respond to anything about the Library of Alexandria. What a loss, what a loss, the, the storehouse of knowledge. Well, the reason why I talked about that, when we hear about the destruction of Lindisfarne, when we think of the treasure we think Lindisfarne was a monastic center that was famous for its production of manuscripts and, and codices. And so I think there's, and these are priceless, priceless books. You know, we've seen, you know, the gospels and, and just the, 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 the decorations and the designs and, um, you know, manuscripts are treasures. So I think there's an immediate connection. Okay, monasteries, are undefended, which is a point we should go back to. Are, are monasteries, in fact, undefended? I think that's a question we should talk about in a sec. But in terms of what were monasteries, what were Vikings seeking if if they were lured? If, you know, to, to use that word, I loved it, by the way, when I saw the title. <laughs> um, you know, what were they seeking? We tend to think if monasteries have treasure at all, it is the they're in their vast libraries, the storehouse of knowledge. In some respect, it's true. These are treasures. You know, manuscripts are treasures. It is it, it the, they are priceless, but that's priceless by our standard. You know, so I think we need to be a little more materialistic if we're trying to assess the relative value of a manuscript. And of course, if we are just looking at the materials of a manuscript, they are extremely valuable you know the amount of vellum now vellum was a vellum meaning that the, the the pages of a manuscript just to acquire the amount of pages you know folios of uh, of a manuscript you would need you know i, I don't want to make up a number a couple uh, hundred sheep <laughs> yeah or, or, yeah exactly you know <laughs> a, a herd of sheep now the the skin of the animals 
would have been a byproduct of various other industries, food industries, milk industries, et cetera. Um, but if they're still, they have a lot of value. Um, and then the process, the process of taking essentially a piece of leather and turning it into a page is absolutely laborious. It needs to actually. Be let me let me just insert right here. Uh, we oh, will yeah. put in um, in our description a link to. There's a really good video, just six minute video that I oh. show my students that yeah, you're familiar with, right? That the Getty Museum, which also has a world class collection of medieval manuscripts, but it's about how to make a medieval book, and it goes through the, this entire process. And you know, it always gives my students a good idea of like why these things were so valuable and also why literacy rates were so low because the product, you mean, clearly only rich people could have ever afforded right. to have right. a book commissioned, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the, 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 the stretching of the vellum and the treating, uh, the, the, the denuding it of all of the hair. And then, then once it's ready to go and then you would fold it and then you would uh, assemble it into kind of uh, a book form and then you would sew it together and then and then you would begin you know then you would begin to line the page and prick the page and then then you would take the ink and the ink itself is extremely valuable and hard to produce it's called encaustum it, it, it it's it's acidic it it and it's I'm not saying it's hard to come by because the most simple types of inks were probably just sort of soot and um, resin Terrible. yeah um, but then they became, you know, later in the later Middle Ages, it became ferrous. And, and you know, again, it's all about, you know, durability and how long lasting it was. Um, and so then you would painstakingly, you know, inscribe by hand in beautiful, very regular letters by a trained scribe. But of course, the page would be laid out first. And if there was going to be an illustration, the illustrations space would be left for the illustrations. An artist would later come and would kind of provide the illustration and perhaps even illuminate it at some stage in the, in the much later than we're talking about now, you would take liquid metals, gold and silver, et cetera, and illuminate the page. And then you would bind it up and you would have a codex and on the wooden covers of the codex, you would kind of inlay jewels and gold and you would have this precious kind of artifact. The thing is, in a medieval monastery, I don't think any, of course, you would have up to the point of illumination, you would have that document, which is invaluable, which is very expensive, but I don't think has any value to a Viking. Exactly. Uh, it would be, it would be letters on a page. And, you know, I don't think that translates into material value for a Viking. Of a, a Viking. They have to monetize it. So right. ransoming so, and stuff is, yeah. When we think of these illuminated manuscripts with bejeweled covers, those are deluxe manuscripts commissioned by a noble that, and it would not be housed in a monastic monastery. You know, the books in a monastic monastery would likely serve liturgical uses or perhaps the uses of students in the monastery. They would be school texts. They would be very utilitarian. I'm not saying they wouldn't be beautiful, yeah. but um, I don't think they ha would have, they would be that lure, you know? So- um, Yeah, the cultural well, and, difference too. Yeah, go ahead, CJ. I mean, in, in all everything I've looked at, I, all the documents that talk about Viking raids on monasteries, 
we hear about like Simeon of Durham, for example, who talks about the people being dragged off, the silver being carried away, but they don't mention in the manuscripts at all. Right. Uh, yeah. And I don't I don't know of any mention of, oh, and then the Vikings took away the manuscripts and, you know, it's a Viking who comes in illiterate, you know, I mean, I think the most they ever had was runes on a rune stick. Right. So they might even that point, they yeah. might not, you know, they're looking like they're, where are all the sheepskins and <laughs> what are they yeah, doing going, here? Yeah, going back to my comment about the Library of Alexandria, I, I love the fact that we in the modern world, looking back on the devastation that you know that's that's kind of brought to these communities monastic communities or you know maybe alexandria at certain times in history what devastates us is the loss of the wealth of knowledge no, that, that's what kind of devastates us you know the dissolution of the monasteries by by henry the eighth the the uh destruction of monasteries by the french revolutionaries we think of the lost knowledge you know I guess that's a credit to us that that's what we are sensitive to. But I think when it comes to the Vikings, they want, you know, they want, um, they want treasure that can be translated very quickly that can be converted, yeah. I guess is a better word, um, yeah. into more useful money. And, and lastly, just in line with what CJ was saying, of all the descriptions of the Northmen in the Carolingian world, we don't hear once of, we don't hear at all about the libraries. We don't hear at all about the books. In fact, what's more, what's most interesting, you do hear about treasure, which is really not specified what that is, and people, captives. Yeah. You know, captives are mentioned. Yeah. Um, so, you know, monasteries, you know, and when asked when you asked me to be on this, I thought, well, what do I know? Because here I am trying to hold the Vikings at bay, you know. Um, the real question for me is, were monasteries targeted at all? You know, and and that's that kind of made me reflect on what I know of how they operated in France, at least in Germany. Um, first of all, monasteries weren't necessarily coastal in. 8th and 9th century France. In fact, they were not at all coastal. Um, in Britain, in Ireland, there was a tradition of monasticism that differed from the continent, you know, and it was called peregrination. So monks oftentimes would get in a boat. And we're talking, this is very early Middle Ages. This is almost, you know, time of St. Patrick, um, who is considered a peregrinator as a a peregrination just means a journey, you know, and so in, in this tradition of monasticism, you would get in a boat or go on a long journey. And honestly, the best way to the best way to give your will to God is literally allow God to tell you where you want it, where you should be. So you get in a boat and you don't even steer it and just let the current and the wind take you and where you end up is where God wants you to establish your monastic house. So maybe not surprisingly you know early on at least in the tradition you have these very remote monasteries in coastal regions but in france and germany and italy spain monasteries had actually long been incorporated into the world you know and and i i go back to there's a there's a really when i when i teach this to students i i always talk about saint martin of tours you know, St. Martin of Tours wanted nothing more than to be a monk. 
and a, and a hermit and, and live in a cave and devote himself to God and live a life of prayer and abstinence. Um, well, he, he did this for a few years and, you know, the um, Bishop of Tours died. Um, Tours was far to the north of where he was living at the time. And he gets a message and, you know, oh, the people have heard of your great sanctity. Uh, would you consider being our bishop? And Martin of Tours says, no, <laughs> because being a bishop would mean to live the active life, to yeah. serve the world, not live the contemplative life. And I want to I want to pray to God. You know, I don't want to be distracted. Um, and so Martin of Tours was not interested. So the so the people of Tours had to trick him. They, they, they sent down another message. You know, the child of one of our prominent citizens is, is ill. Would you come up and see if you could heal this child? And the moment he stepped into the through the gates of the city, they proclaimed him bishop. All, oh. he, wanted, all he wanted to be, in fact, I show this amazing image. Um, it's a stained glass image of the, of, of the investiture, I guess you call it, of uh, Martin of Tours. And, and they're putting the mitre on his head and he looks so miserable. He looks so, he does not want it, but it, it's almost, he, he, he realizes that he can't avoid the active life. And, uh, and in France, in, in Italy, Germany, and in the continent at least, um, and I'm only saying at least because I'm, I'm really very unfamiliar with the Anglo-Saxon monastic tradition, but on the continent, um, monks are forever caught between the world and you know um heaven you know they're 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 living on the periphery it's a liminal existence in some respect monks are called to live in the world you know that monasteries provide very important services you know yeah. they are hospitals they are charitable organizations they're prisons they're schools yeah. you know they there's a need in society society grows up around a monastery so um when when vikings appeared in france um i don't i don't think they're targeting these communities at all these communities are simply there alongside villages and alongside cities and vikings are are, are indiscriminate in fact in every single carolingian account of the um northmen the vikings yeah um i would say 90 percent of them are about cities and villages i i've i've only found other than alcuin's uh, discussion of lindisfarne you know i've i've only seen two or three where a monastery is specifically mentioned at all now that might simply be the 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 result of the perspective of the author you know the author you know, you know, may not live in a monastic community or the author's focus may be on worldly events, not necessarily monastic events. And so that's what you see, you know, oh, the, the king led his armies against so-and-so. Meanwhile, the Northmen came and attacked this town. You know, that's kind of within that author's perspective. Um, maybe these monasteries were targeted a lot more than the, 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 uh, the historical records indicate. But I don't know if they were, they they lured the Vikings to them, you know, uh, in, in that way. Yeah. And so really the only piece, and tell me what, what I'm talking, when I'm going on too long, the only real question for me that still remains, yes, they, they were absolutely attacked. 
you know, yes, they were despoiled. Yes, they were they were plundered. Yes, yes, um, people were taken captive. Um, but the the other assumption I think that st we, we still need to deal with is were were monasteries in any way targeted because this was a community of pacifists? Okay, wait, hold on before you before you do that, because actually I, I have a passage here that just to give our audience oh. an example of you know what you're just talking about there with these kinds of um, chroniclers, right, and monastic commentators. And so this is uh, in the mid ninth century. So it's they've already been hammered for a few decades at this point. Um, but this is in Noirmoutier, and he says um, the number of Viking or the, sorry, the, the number of ships grows. The endless stream of Vikings never ceases to increase. Everywhere the Christians are the victims of massacres, burnings, plunderings. The Vikings conquer all in their path and nothing resists them. They seize Bordeaux, Perigueux, Limoges, Angoulême, and Toulouse, Angers, Tours, and Orléans, and are annihilated, and an innumerable fleet sails up the Seine, and the evil grows in the whole region. Rouen is laid waste, plundered, and burned. Paris, Beauvais, and Meaux taken. Melun, strong fortress leveled to the ground. Chartres occupied. Evreux and Bayou plundered, and every town besieged. So, I mean, it's just, it's like this massive onslaught, but you're right. I mean, they're not really saying, oh, us poor monasteries, they took our things or in any indication that it's well, like a specific hit yeah yeah that's that's later right so we have our three yeah. phases of viking expansion as outlined by the french historian lucien musée uh my understanding so actually non is that's my focus so yeah, I, yes. I look at that and uh I, I i like what you said um about challenging the assumption that monasteries were definite targets uh particularly since when we're talking about the Viking Age, we're talking about three centuries of activity. So it's very easy to just blanket say, hey, this was a phenomenon throughout the three centuries. However, early on, the first couple of raids, we start with Lindisfarne, which was a big deal. I always go back to the uh, Anglo-centrism of, <laughs> of the, the study of the Viking Age because uh, we, we tend to delineate the Viking Age as starting at Lindisfarne, even though there was a raid uh, at the Port of Portland what, four years before in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Uh, and then we end with 1066, you know, the, the closure of the Viking Age with, with the Norman invasion of England. So very Anglo-centric, whereas if we move into France, it's a much different experience, particularly as it pertains to Normandy later. But in the beginning, that's the is the first place that they supposedly attacked in 799. Mm -hmm. And there's a very definite progression in those first few years before the year 800, because we have Lindisfarne in 793, and then in 795, we have Iona, another monastery, but on the other side of the, the British Isles, mm -hmm. kind of north of north of Ireland, right, northeast. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we have Nelmoutier, which is in, or Saint-Philbert, which is the, the monastery there, in 799. What's interesting about Saint-Philbert, and now these are very isolated cases, so can we say that monasteries were... Um, were the definite target of the Vikings early on. We know there are a lot of other raids outside of the monasteries too. And I can't name them all because they don't all have names. So <laughs> uh, all but those arrows on that map. Yeah, all those arrows, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what, what was interesting about Saint-Philbert in particular is uh, by by the year 819, we had the abbot, his name was Alnulf, and he wrote a letter to Higgebald, or not Higgebald, uh, to the uh, the Archbishop of Salzburg complaining of frequent and persistent raids. 
And these rays were so persistent that the monks started abandoning the island. So they actually got a, a, a royal charter to establish a satellite priory called Dias on the continent. And they would flee the island in the summer during raiding season and then go back in the winter. Smart. And in 836, they were so plagued. Actually, so back to the where were they undefended. In 830, they got a charter from, uh, I think it was Pepin of Aquitaine, who uh, allowed them to build a castrum. So basically a fortification around the monastery to defend against the Vikings. It failed. The Vikings took over in 836. The monks left definitively. They went to deaths. What's stranger is once they did move to the continent, the Vikings followed them. <laughs> in the 840s, they went inland and went to death. So there was something, I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like in that situation, so maybe we can't say, you know, in, in broad terms, monasteries were the target, but we, I think it, it's safe to say that for that small monastery, for some reason, there was a draw and I guess uh, I would like to hear from you what you think a possible draw in that particular instance might have been. Right. Oh, I, know what you, I know what you want him to say, too. I want you I want to, I want to know what you think he wants me to say. <laughs> I haven't even formulated uh, my response response to that. Um, you know. <laughs> The first thing that occurs to me is monks monks aren't meant to be responsive to the world you know monk like the the that that you know uh it's not more than an anecdote it's it's, it's fascinating that you said they were given a charter to kind of fortify themselves um you know and and practically you know in a practical sense you know that you know is absolutely reasonable um you know and and when I'm talking about monasticism, I'm really talking about monasticism in an idealized way. You know, I, monks monks absolutely have to deal with mundane concerns. You know, in the Vikings, that's a very you know palpable concern um, right in front of them, especially if it comes back year after year. And and if you read lots of chronicles, um, it gets to the point. Here's the, another thing: we also assume that the Vikings are the only ones. Right. doing raiding you know we a, a lot of the carolingian chronicles um the annals you know they talk about saracens they talk they talk about raids from all sorts of different areas one fascinating thing when it comes to the northmen or the vikings is it almost sounds like it almost sounds like the chroniclers are just getting a little exasperated and tired of even reporting it, you know, <laughs> almost as if it's kind of like you said, it's a seasonal thing. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of like, well, you know, the rains were heavy again this spring. All the Vikings returned. <laughs> and, and actually, there is one chronicle that I, I just recently went back to. Um, and I don't know if it's Xanten or, or December 10. Um, but it it almost but we don't even need to go back. We don't even need to go into that. You know, you know what those Vikings do. Um, One yeah. of those actually, it, there's a there's a, a a comment in it where it says, "Here they are again for their usual surprise attack." Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, actually, I think I think there's two that are coming to mind. One says, "But but it doesn't serve us to even go into just how vicious and immoral they were." 
Um, the shock know, and awe is over. Whether that chronicler was trying to spare the audience, just, you know, the... Um, the the gory details. The gory details. <laughs> That's possible. But another one, it almost ends with an ellipsis. It's kind of like, and the Vikings came in, well, you... <laughs> And it stops. Yeah. And then the next entry starts. Um, oh, no, that I, guy died. That's what happened right there. And maybe, yeah, maybe that was, they are coming. They are he coming. was struck down by... Um, so I, I actually have the, the Annals of St. Burton right here. And so, like, to your point, in 843, so they talk about Lothar and Louis behaved peacefully, keeping themselves within the boundaries of their own realms. Yada, yada. And then suddenly you get oh, yeah. Northmen pirates attack Nantes through the bishop and many clergy and lay people of both sexes. They sacked the civitas. Charles went as arranged to right. meet his brothers. <laughs> and, and, that's, and did you just yada, yada, Viking? It's, it's almost to the point. And I know there's there's lots of discussion and, and this isn't my world about the Viking invaders, settlers, etc. Um, uh, in, in England, I know a whole lot more about this with respect to to Britain, how they began to stay more permanently, you know, and when, when I teach this, I, I make special mention of the fact that, well, they didn't leave and they stayed and they wintered on this island and, you know, and, uh, and then and then began to, to settle permanently. You know, France, France is different, you know, um, in a lot of ways. And I, I don't know whether it, it, it still within the ninth century at least pretty much stayed at the rating level and and it did become seasonal and you know with respect to the frequency in in the annals and chronicles it almost became almost not even needing to be said and reported they're here again and meanwhile charles and his brothers and then you get paragraph after paragraph of political history you might get a report on the weather again and how seasonal or unseasonal so it might be um and and then maybe just a line about oh and the northmen again yeah. um so it's it's business as usual now you know it, it might be easy to kind of skirt over that that these entries what 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 i think it would suggest is these communities are absolutely destroyed yep. and people have to flee and people have to rebuild Perhaps, you know, in the case of towns and cities, I'm sure the rebuilding happened, um, you know, and people resettled. In terms of monasteries, how many were abandoned as a result of it? And, um, you know, that would be that would be something that I would want to look into more. In terms of a monk's response to it, though, yeah. you know, this is what's fascinating. A monk's response to the Vikings. First of all, do monks put up any resistance at all? You know, we we have a sense that monks are nonviolent, um, and there's even a more interesting assumption we have of monks that they have somehow vowed not to use weapons or bladed weapons, and this this goes into you know modern day science fiction fantasy and and World of Warcraft and you know monk characters and just what. What describes a monk? Oh, a monk, a monk has pledged never to pick up a, a blade, things like that. Um, you know, there nowhere in any monastic rule does it say monks can't defend themselves. Nowhere in a monastic rule does it even say, you know, does it specify 
you know, monks can't be physically violent. It doesn't specify that because it doesn't need to. A monk shouldn't be given to anger. You know, a monk is to trust in God. Um, so, you know, the, the notion what happens when monks see Vikings come and enter their community, can they put up a fight? You know, I think that's kind of interesting. Were they just, did they just fall over or flee at the first sign of a Viking? I think most people fled at the first sign of a Viking, not just a monk, a villager. I don't, I don't think we, there's much in the way of a distinction here. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything that about a monk that makes a monk more particularly vulnerable than anyone else. You know, very few people are professional warriors at this time. Um, yeah, my you know, students, this is a common thing. They're always like, well, why didn't the monks just fight back? Right. Like, well, you know, they probably did. I mean, they're like anybody else. You sort of get attacked and that's your response, right? right. Your sort of reflex response is to mm -hmm. like try to save your own life if you can. Right. But then there's also the other question too of, which maybe gets to a little bit more about sort of, you know, Frankia as a polity, as it were. And that's like, well, you know, why isn't the cavalry coming in to save these institutions, you know, kind of thing. And I, I mean, my response, I'll ask you, you know, what's going on there politically, because we know later in the ninth century, like towards the end, all of a sudden, we're starting to get Odo and Arnulf or whatever, who are building up, who have enough force to kind of be like, all right, we're clamping down on this. But earlier on, it's like understanding the nature of what it takes to even have a military force that's sort of on guard, you know, for any possible Viking attack, which we're like kind of, I mean, we're talking seasonal stuff, but it's also kind of rando, you know, at times it's unexpected. They were good at surprise attacks, at least initially and stuff. And, and I, in I compare it, I compare it rightly or wrongly, you know, I, I watched the World Cup um, this year and you know, I absolutely love soccer or football. Um, and 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 compared to a lot of other American sports, there are some really intriguing rules when it comes to soccer. You know, you count up, not down. You never know when precisely the match is going to end. And I, I kind of like that uncertainty. Some of my other friends are just, you know, beside themselves. And a match ends when it ends. Um, another interesting, you know, rule, you have 90 minutes of play plus... You might even have an overtime and then it's decided by, you know, these uh, like some sort of, what do they call it? You know, where, where there's, you know, penalty, not, they're not penalty kicks. It's a kick out or something like that. Yes, yeah. There's a you know, better name for it. Um, well, when I'm watching, you know, a penalty kick in soccer, I'll just say penalty kick. When I'm watching it, I'm, I'm sometimes a little beside myself simply because these are, these are the best of the best, these goaltenders, these goalkeepers. How do you explain the fact that the best of the best yeah. made millions of dollars goes to one side of the net and the ball goes to the other? You know, and I always ask my students this, you know, that you couldn't have saved the ball worse. You know, you are in the opposite side of the net. And of course, the answer is, you know, that that goalie can, cannot wait to see where it's going. If the goalie waits to see where it's going by the time the goalie moves in that direction, you know, he or she is too late. So you have to predict. And I think in, in France, um, you know, initially, if, if there's any degree of centralization in terms of the military, or even if it's sort of a local militia, you, you cannot 
predict where these Vikings are going to attack. And you don't have the resources. You know, so going back to that monastery that got a charter to, you know, develop, to fortify itself. Well, that's very unusual. And it's likely because they were right in the way of this route. You know, they are in an island. And, you know, that was just kind of, it's not that they had a target on them. You know, it's just they were right on the highway, you know, and, and every year they were going to, you know, that was that was, um, you know, a possibility. So it made sense to 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 kind of devote resources to that one area. But otherwise, otherwise, I mean, cities, cities were being attacked. So, um, you know, in terms of priorities, you couldn't just send out roaming armies to, to kind of hope to intercept, you know, these these raiders. It's expensive. Um, Oh yeah, it's too expensive, and you can't put garrisons everywhere. Right. Um, you know, so uh, I guess you know they had to wait to find different solutions, but it certainly wasn't you know in the ninth century that they eventually arrived at it. Um, well, going they, going they back to, I was, yep. was going to go back to that that charter too, just in terms of the social contract construct of society at the time. Uh, mentioning that the the monasteries were were landowners, right? So the church was a as a large landowner, and the local you know lords, you know, like the say for example, we'll just take the Nantes, right? The the Count of Nantes, right? It was at the time is Guy de Nantes. He is the Count of of Nantes and the Poitou, which is the surrounding region. And the social contract at the time is you know we protect peasants who are on our land, but the church wasn't their land. Right. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I if you if you take that back to uh, the the I don't want to call it the Saracen invasions, but the Muslim invasions of France, going back to Charles the Hammer. Right. Yeah. The the Franks actually didn't lift a finger to defend the country until the church paid them <laughs> because right. yeah. because the Muslims were invading church lands. And then they were like, well, that's not our problem. That's your problem. Right. right? <laughs> and so going back to that, pro going back to that charter. It's basically the monks saying, hey, we need help. Can you send an army? And actually in 836, the Franks did send an army right. and they they did defeat the Vikings on the island of Dombuchi, I think it's 835. But mm -hmm. then when the Franks went home, the following month, the Vikings came back right. and they took the island. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's also a political, mm -hmm. uh, what, uh, what's the right word? There's a, there's a political hurdle to overcome yeah. between the church and the landowners or the uh, the Franks, right? Right. Well, this oh, yeah. is secular landholders. Like, yeah. This is the exact kind of thing that we hear about with Vikings, and isn't it too? This ex exploitation of, of of weakness in those that mm -hmm. regard, right? Well, while those two are busy squabbling over who's going to protect who, we'll just keep hammering all right. of them. And so, and when it when it comes to kind of what Vikings were after, and rightly or wrongly, you know, I I live in a neighborhood. It it it, it it's kind of a, it's an urban neighborhood. Um, it's quite nice. It's very safe. Um, but we have a problem with kind of smash and grab in our vehicles. You know, you, you, you know, every so often, you know, there might be one street in our neighborhood where the, the cars get targeted. Um, and actually, my car got targeted. And I think my wife left her, uh, her, her, her laptop computer in it, in the front seat, you know, uh, now the car was locked and, and I'm sure, you know, we, we didn't intend to kind of leave it there. Um, but the next morning it was still there. You know, the most valuable thing in the car, other than the car itself, first of all, the car itself was still there. And, and CJ, you kind of reminded me of what really was the treasure 
in the early Middle Ages. It's the land itself. And the Vikings weren't after that land. They weren't trying to mistake a claim, you know. So sure, they can come and then they could they could go back. But the land is what's valuable, you know, and it could be resettled and, and, and reworked. Um, but going back to kind of the car analogy, you know, the computer itself wasn't even taken. What well, what's taken? Change, you know, change in 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 you know um, you know the the glove box. Um, to me, what's valuable is our identification. Is is you know any any identifying documents and insurance and um, and of course maybe electronics. Maybe I maybe I have a manuscript that I'm about to publish, and that's in the back seat. You know, well, that's almost like you know a book in a monastic scriptorium or a library. You know, these people don't want that. Um, you know, they want something that just has immediate value. Um, and to me, it's a pain. By the way, it's a pain to have to repair a window. In fact, I've almost got to the point, and a lot of people in my neighbor have got to a point. You just leave your cars unlocked. Yeah, yeah. You leave your cars unlocked at night, and you know, in the morning, you know, that your car might be tossed. It might, might, you know, be rummaged through. But really, nothing of value is taken. And again, I don't want to make claims I can't back up right now. But just to, just hearing about the Vikings returning and how the chroniclers are describing the Vikings and their activity in France, I almost have to wonder, have, have they got to the point or to, have I gotten to the point that they did? You know, that I know that this is a possible occurrence. I know that, you know, I may, this may be a, a huge inconvenience. Um, now, and I shouldn't speak so flippantly of people's lives and people being captured and, and people, yeah. you know, being destroyed uh, or um, and, and property being destroyed and people being killed. But from the attitude of, of a high ranking official or administrator, where is it best to put our resources? You know, where is it best? What do we need to protect? What can we do? Yeah. You know, and I think you know, the, the priorities were the most populated of places, you know. We know the, sometimes that they did do, they in some of the chronicles that they indicate that, you know, attempts to hide the goods in anticipation of them mm -hmm. coming. So I feel yeah. like sake to some of the less valuables, we'll just set it out on the front porch <laughs> and leave it there for, you know, it's, yeah, I think you're right. You sort of have to start making those decisions. Um, and the exasperation, I can imagine, it's just, you're just tired of it, right? So I do have a follow-up question, and this goes back more toward the beginning of the conversation as it pertains to the precious metals for all of the, the items that were used in prayer, liturgy, etc. So one of the arguments that I like to make is, you know, for these repeated raids, they must have been looking for something specific, something that wasn't bodies because they were abandoning the, abandoning the island in the summer. So this is uh, going back to, this is the example mm -hmm. on Nomutia where the, the repeated raids so if they're coming back year after year, you'd think this, the monks would start getting wise to this, kind of like you with your car. Don't leave any valuables in there. So they take all the valuables back to the mainland. They take all the people back to the mainland. And so there would really not be anything for the Vikings to find there other than so there or or was there something else? And then going back to your um, assertion that land is the, the real value to the monks. So how crucial would all of these say silver goods for for their religious practice have been 
And so, cause I always think of it as like, surely they, they wouldn't be stupid enough to replenish a monastery full of silver every year. But if it was important enough for them to go back to this valuable land, to rework the land, but while they're there, they have to have these things in order to lead their monastic life. Could you speak a little bit to that as like the centrality of that, of those things? Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I was going to, I was going to make another analogy. I'm, I've decided I'm going to leave my car alone. I'm going to leave my car alone. Um, yeah, I, I think when it comes to the liturgy, there are, there are items that are just indispensable that you absolutely have to have that you need to restock, you know, that you, you cannot do without, um, you know, it, um, um, I, I, during now, now we're going to Tudor times. Now we're going to King Henry VIII. And, and I'm just thinking about how the church was changed and transformed in that time from, you know, Henry VIII to, to Edward, to uh, Mary and to Elizabeth. Churches within 60 years had to divest themselves of all their treasures, reacquire it, get rid of it. Maybe, I mean, the thing is when it comes to, you know, Catholic, Roman Catholic worship, you know, there are things that are necessary. There are, um, you know, you need altars. Um, one thing I didn't mention that had a tremendous amount of value, both spiritually and um, just materially, were reliquaries. Mm -hmm. You know, reliquaries, you know, a lot of these monastic foundations are there because of the saints, you know, and and in fact, the the acquisition um, of relics and the um, the veneration of relics was it a very important part of monastic life. It, it drew, it, it attracted pilgrims to many monastic centers. And so it was a potential revenue source in some ways, if you want to consider it that, yeah. um, you know, so relics would not, you, you would not, you would not kind of bury a relic. You know, that's the, the, the whole point is, is a relic is there to kind of provide a meaningful channel, you know, between that, that might elevate you in, in, in prayer. Um, so they are meant to be venerated. Um, and meant to be displayed, but at the same time, you know, you, you you treat a relic with with great respect, and and you encase a relic in 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 a reliquary, a precious precious metals. Um, so these would also be something. I mean, it's the reason why some monasteries are even there at all. Um, so I I don't think if monks return to a community, would they would they be wise enough? to not bring back the wealth, maybe to sort of leave it aside. I think they have to. If, if, if you want to live as a monk, they didn't see this as material wealth, hard to come by, of course. They saw it as, as indispensable to their lives. So the, the vessels used in the liturgy, relics would be, you know, I wish I had more evidence that might suggest, you know, were, were any relics uh, taken by Vikings unknowingly, you know, because, simply because they would at least look in physical appearance to be a little treasure box. You know, that's kind of um, the appearance of them. In Gomuji, um, they, they, the, supposedly they left it. So the, the body <laughs> was left at the monastery and then the Vikings didn't take the bones. They took all the other stuff. Uh, right. And then when they, when they moved to the mainland in 836, they brought the relics with them to the set, the satellite priory. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, let's just like, just to be clear for our, our maybe some in our audience who don't understand what a, a reliquary is, right? It's, it's it's generally a container that has the relics of a saint, someone who's being venerated in the Roman Catholic tradition. And oftentimes it's the bones or a yeah, bone. And it could, be, it could be any object associated. It, it, it provides kind of a tangible sign of God's grace on earth, whether it's through yeah. the activity of a, of a man or a woman whether it's a, a special object associated with a woman. I talked about Martin of Tours. Well, one of the most famous relics in all of France is uh, Martin of Tours when he was a soldier was entering a city, I think it was Amiens, and he saw a beggar at the side of the road and that beggar was shivering. And so Martin actually took his, his officer's cloak and he ripped it in half and he gave it to the beggar. And that became like what a demonstration of, of Christian charity and the kings of France, actually, because St. Martin became quite prominent. Um, the kings of France desired that relic, Martin's cloak, and they kept it in their personal chapel. And, and actually the word capella, meaning cloak, is where we get the word chapel today. So, um, you know, so the, any any special object and. When, when I talk about relics to my students, you know, I, I think about even, you know, if I'm walking the streets of Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., and or, or if I'm in a, in a holy place or Jerusalem, if I'm walking in the same place of a very significant person, it connects me more to their lives, you know, connects me more to what was important in their lives. Sometimes I, just to kind of, um, you know, underline the point a little bit, you know, I say, you know, I teach in an American university, um, you know, um, John Hancock. Who's John Hancock? And of course, no one really knows who John Hancock is. And I show them the, is the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, John Hancock has the biggest signature, you know, on, on that declaration. And I said, well, what if I said to you right now, I have John Hancock's pen. Do you want to like pass it around? Well, that's kind of cool, you know, to, to, to kind of have a piece of history in your hand. It really kind of connects you with that moment. Well, a relic kind of connects you with the sanctity of an individual and, and might inspire your kind of uh, spiritual life in a way um, that, you, you know, you might not otherwise be able to. So, you know, that's why, you know, why people sought relics and monasteries were an ideal place to reposit a relic because a monk was devoted to prayer. And, you know, in addition to singing the Psalms daily, monks would pray for the dead and monks would kind of keep the memory of these individuals alive. But there was that, you know, added bonus. Having a relic oftentimes made a monastery a place of pilgrimage. And, and I'm fascinated by medieval architecture and ecclesiastical architecture. And what tends, what even happens architecturally, if you've ever been in a, a large Gothic cathedral and you see all these altars that kind of are, are right down at the Eastern end of a church, um, they're, they're secondary altars, um, but the choir of the monks is almost shut off right in the middle. You know, these would be monastic communities that had jobs to do. Yeah. But all of these, but they would yep. have pilgrims that yep. would just kind of circle the, the outside altars because they, they couldn't have their prayers interrupted. They couldn't have their, 
their, their, um, the, the divine office, the work of God interrupted. But these pilgrims brought a great amount of business to yep. these communities and donations. So, you know, reliquaries that these treasures um, were part of the monastic experience. And so sorry about that. Yeah, no, go no, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, you know, I was just gonna say, so the precious nature of these things that you're talking about, um, and especially because we're talking about the eighth and ninth century, and this is when, you know, this is prior to Scandinavia becoming Christian. And so, I mean, to me, it kind of highlights an interesting, you know, with these idea of the hits on the monasteries, intentional or not, um, of just the culture clash, right? Because clearly the, the monks and, and the faithful saw all of these things as very necessary, as you say. I mean, you, you got to have a chalice and a patent. You got to have a pix. You got to have, you know, your reliquary, all that stuff. It's going to get replenished. These things are important to us. They are precious to us. And yet for the Vikings, it's like they're driving up to the ATM. They don't care, right? They're just like, give me the stuff. I, I need it to monetize. And then it sort of also begs the question of, is it purely that? Or is it also like, oh, I'm taking this because I know it's precious to you. And there's some level of kind of terror that right. is conveyed. Well, and, and you raise a really interesting point. You know, the fact that these are pagans, you know, to, yep. to, to a Christian monk, these are pagans. And how terrifying, you know, yep. that, that clash of culture. Well, you know, monks in the eighth century, ninth century, they 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 reminisced. They 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 were nostalgic about the way monasticism used to be practiced, and the way monasticism used to be practiced is monasticism wasn't easy. Monasticism wasn't wasn't some lifestyle where like it's moving to a commune and growing collective food and living a life of peace. Monasticism was a risky prospect. It was meant to challenge you. And honestly, if it resulted in your death or martyrdom, that's almost the point. You know, monasticism in a lot of ways is a metaphorical death. You know, you know, yeah. you can't you can't kind of speed up, be like, you, you know, this isn't the age of, of of gladiators and Christian persecution. You know, in fact, monasticism is, you know, a, a, almost a result of the fact that you don't that Christians aren't living in an age of persecution anymore. So what do I have to do to sacrifice myself? Because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus died for his faith, and I want to emulate Christ, and I'm called to emulate Christ. But I can't die for my faith. But well, you know, I could die to the world, and that's what monasticism is. Well, you know, monasticism, you know, is meant to be challenging. There's a reason why. You know, in some ways, Charlemagne used monasticism as a way to subdue pop pagan populations, to extend control. Armies, armies couldn't, you know, conquer for him. You know, uh, Charlemagne tried year after year after year to subdue the Saxons, you know, and just unsuccessfully. You know, ultimately, Saxony was brought into the empire because Charlemagne encouraged monasteries to be developed and established. And, and it wasn't a peaceful experience. It was a challenging experience. And I'm sure there were a lot of martyrs made. You know, this is an era of, 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 of missionaries going into, you know, um, going into kind of very dangerous scenarios. And, yeah. and again, this is sometimes what people feel called to do. The whole definition of, of, 
of, of a vocation, of a monastic vocation, is it's meant to be challenging. It's, it's not meant to kind of encourage the status quo. You know, and, and when people, I think, I'd like to think, we could talk about monastic recruitment if we have time and just who were monks, because I'm talking about an ideal. But if, if, if anyone is considering a monastic vocation, I don't think they're, they're looking for club med. I don't think they're looking for a resort. They're, they're looking for something different, something challenging, something risky that will enable them, maybe even accelerate them and fast track them to their eternal reward. And so I'm not saying monks welcomed Vikings and saw them as, you know, the, the kind of uh, an opportunity for martyrdom, you know, um, but I, I think maybe some of them anyways accepted it as part, maybe this is a reason why they went back, that if this is what God calls them to do, you know, and if this is what, what God sees as, 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 you know, how they should live their lives, they should trust in God. And that's what Alcuin, going back to his letter, um, he advises his monks to do, excuse me, not his monks, you know, he advises um, uh, the monks of Britain to do two things, to defend themselves. He says that, defend themselves, to, to take confidence, to defend themselves and trust in God. And it's really interesting what the defend themselves means. You know, is he saying, pick up a, you know, a staff and, and hit him with it? Or is, is he, does he mean kind of like morally defend yourself and spiritually defend yourself? I, I find it fascinating. I think monks might have the human response and may kind of put up their hands and, you know, yeah. try to shield themselves from violence, but also that there's this trust in God, you know, and trust in God, I don't think necessarily means God's going to keep you alive to the ripe old age of 90. You know, trust in God is that God has a plan. And, yeah. you know, I think Alcuin, well, I always sort of like in the, uh, his, his letter for me is always a little bit of a blame the victim kind of I think yeah, yes, defend absolutely. yourself defend yourself means shame on you be better Christians yeah yeah <laughs> I, did, I did I did pick up on, <laughs> on how he sees that that this is a direct response to you know you brought this on yourself right. he, yeah. he does that he does well so to so to bring it back to Vikings this has been yeah. a really interesting conversation because yeah. I had a little bit of an aha moment I'm not going to speak for Lindisfarne or Iona or any of the other monasteries. I'm going to bring it back to Saint-Fidbert in France, specifically, in, uh, because it, it is a, a curious case because it was attacked repeatedly so many times. But we established through this conversation that the value or the valuable things about a monastery from the Christian perspective or the monk's perspective is, number one, the land that needs to be worked, right? Because it takes a tremendous amount of labor and land ownership to produce these manuscripts. Number two is the manuscripts themselves. Those are valuable. Uh, and number three is relics. And as we've also established, those three things are not what the Vikings are after. The Vikings are after portable wealth. Hopefully, I mean, it, so Soren Sindebeck, who's an archaeologist, I think he's at RS University right now. He has done a tremendous amount of work about on the silver economy in Scandinavia at the outset of the Viking Age. So silver, we know, was incredibly important to them. So if they could find portable wealth, specifically silver, that was their favorite. And going back to the idea of like they, the, the monks brought in all of these silver items for their rituals and for their daily you know, religious practices. 
but on the on our list of three those things didn't really feature i mean they're there but they're like fourth place right mm-hmm. so in my mind i'm thinking there's almost this scenario where in some feedback it could have just been a, a perfect storm where the monks would go back to the monastery every year they'd bring back their silver to do their practices for them they would go back because it was to save the manuscripts save the relics and work the land and then mm-hmm. when the Vikings would come, they would leave, but they would leave the silver behind thinking that's 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 low on our priority list. Let's take the mm-hmm. manuscripts and the relics and the people and leave. Right. But what they're inadvertently doing was leaving the thing that was most valuable to the Vikings mm-hmm. behind. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, oh, no. and they, and, but because of the cultural difference, they yep. couldn't see it. Yeah. It, it, almost, no, yeah. Uh, it almost Brilliant. Like, it's almost as if they're renting, you know, their their right. land from the Vikings or leaving them tribute. Um, oh yeah, total accident. (laughs) I mean, they were no strangers to tribute extorting. Let me say wherever I I can just imagine the monks (laughs) sitting down and going, "Why do they keep coming back? We don't leave anything valuable for them." (laughs) Right. Well, the Vikings until until the the 10th century, then they're going to be about the land. Right. Well, I'm just thinking really early on, like, and then the Vikings keep showing up, going. Kind of like how Rainer, uh, when we had our conversation with William Short and Rainer or Oskarsson, right? And uh, Rainer, he's just, you know, yo, what idiots? They just left all the silver behind. (laughs) (laughs) Let's come back and do this again. (laughs) You know, I guess Vikings are um, obviously looking for portable wealth. Another thing I kind of picked up from, you know, a lot of continental sources is, you know, I, I don't know if, if, you know, monasteries weren't exactly centers of trade, you know, the villages and cities were, you know, I think there's a lot more portable wealth there than that would be in a monastery, especially if, if these specific monks are actually taking the the liturgical vessels with them, presumably, presumably they would, or hopefully they would if they're getting kind of a jump start on the raiding season and they're managing to escape their community. Um, what I think they would leave behind, though, are lots of provisions. You know, I'm, you know, and and I saw in a lot of sources, you know, the Vikings are plundering. Yeah, I, we we think of silver and gold, and and absolutely, I'm sure that's that that was they were overjoyed to find it. But food, you know, what what enables them to continue their raids? That would absolutely be you know, it, it would it would be a necessity for them. Um, they cannot they cannot transport, they cannot take with them everything they need for the season. You know, they have to kind of you know, almost establish a supply chain and go from port to port or place to place and get food and, and drink and, and necessities that would allow them to maybe kind of continue on to more desirous targets. Um, do you, you think know, one of the one of the parts of those uh, food resources would have been salt? <gasps> um, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, I I remember listening to to somebody's paper that talked about a monastic inventory, and we just assume that that monks in their their um you know their their larder would just be filled with the most basic of staples, which to me would still I think be important to Vikings, you know, just to have very basic provisions. Um, And, but it's amazing what monks actually had, even the most remote communities, you know, um, I can't afford saffron at my grocery store. 
you know, but they had spice. I'm not saying they had saffron. I seem to remember something almost so, you know, very expensive in one of these monastic inventories. I was just shocked. I was just shocked, you know, that this would be kind of in some remote place in Northern Europe. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think monasteries, if monasteries were in some sort of direct route that would be used by Viking raiders, well, this would almost be, you know, not, not a fast food place, but this would be a place to stay. There would be shelter, there would be food, you know, it, it, if, if there was silver, great. And honestly, I think if if monks are taking liturgical vessels with them, I don't think they're going to leave silver. I, I think they're going to do their best to take, you know, um, you know what is most valuable, but they're not going to take flour, milled flour. They're not going to take perishable goods. But I think to a Viking, this would be very important. Well, and that's part of the the research that I've done is that in Domutier, it's a salt producing island. Is it? So okay. Salt okay. So no, salt no, would can... have been a, a very important commodity to, sh to ship out. And um, uh, there's a, 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 a study that just came out that showed that the herring trade started maybe three, four centuries as early as, as you know, the 700s, uh, as opposed to where it, uh, it was previously thought that didn't really start in the Baltic until you know, uh -huh. four or five centuries right. later. And so herring is a very salt, uh, fatty fish and how you preserve it is in salt, right? Because oh. before, you know, I have a friend in Denmark and I tell him about the whole salt thing. He's like, but look, 50 kilometers in any direction. He's, I'm in Denmark, 50 kilometers in any direction and it's ocean. I don't need salt. And if, if right. we're fishing cod, we dry it. But with the herring, it adds a little extra layer to that where they would have to salt it. Well, and then salt is just a good commodity to have in general. Yeah. Right. So uh, salt and wine. So those would have been things that they could have taken right. back. But to your point about the supply line, we do see that in Ireland. So Ireland's experience of the Viking Age is unique insofar as they are the first place where Vikings started landing and staying with. Hmm. And, yeah. and because the Irish at the time lived insularly, so they lived on inland, they weren't really on the coast. Vikings just started setting up uh, what we call long ports along the edge. And that's the supply line that is thought to have led Vikings into Western France Interesting, without really. having to go yeah. through the English Channel. Because mm -hmm. going through, so if I'm a Norwegian and I try to go through the English Channel, a Danish ship is just going to sink me. They didn't, they didn't right. like each other. In fact, in the annals of, or actually the annals of St. Burton, I was, just, I actually flipped to like 853 and they talked about the Viking Civil War between the Norwegians and the Danes. Oh, that, really? Uh, yeah. Allowed Franks to, to push them out. Yeah. <laughs> so... Right. Uh, so we know they didn't they didn't like each other necessarily or didn't always mm -hmm. play nice even within their own you know their own groups but yeah mm -hmm. so the salt thing's a lot of well i'm, gl I'm glad to, i'm glad that that kind of uh corroborates some of my suppositions um yeah salt you know would would have had immense value as a commodity as a preservative um you know i do have a question on uh so we mentioned so like kind of like saint fidbert they have the monastery and there's a village around it and so the the monks weren't farming salt we don't think especially since when the monks abandoned the island the we we have we can trace the the export of salt from the island to other places in the carolingian empire so someone was still there producing it so there must have been some kind of population present on the island but it's insofar as the the economy of a monastery i'm curious to know more about the the trade networks between the monasteries how those might have functioned how much contact they might have had because they, they like you said they're supposed to be 
satellite uh, that, i don't want you know they're supposed to be distant and far away and disconnected but what were there connections between them specifically for trade um i you know that's a, a really interesting question i've never considered the only type of monastery to monastery kind of interaction i've looked at is intellectual so in the ninth century you know, abbots would correspond with each other, would request books from uh, from their respective libraries so that they could acquire missing texts. You know, they know that Jerome wrote four volumes of a particular commentary on scripture, but they only have two. Well, do you have this one? Could you send it to me so I can make a copy? Or, you know, so there was, there was an intellectual network between monastic communities, but for, but precisely because monasteries were the schoolhouses and libraries of the early middle ages so that's that would account for that direct connection but in terms of you know i don't know if you're referring more specifically to commodities um and necessities you know daily necessities you know i i i wouldn't see traffic directly between monasteries i i would see them more between monasteries and cities um you know uh, I don't think a monastery was very ever far away from a city if the city if it wasn't in right in the middle of a city. What what you what you see, you know, you know, I mentioned before how monks in the even even in the rule of Saint Benedict, you know, the the author of the rule laments. Well, back in the age of giants, this is what you know monks were able to do, but we poor, you know incapable individuals living so far away this is the best we can do you know it was almost it was almost an excuse for why the monastic life wasn't as vigorous in the middle ages as it was in in late antiquity well what's interesting in the eighth and ninth century you you see the same thing monasteries are not supposed to be near people you know there, there that, there's that understanding you know monks would be would have been familiar with you know the meaning of their vocation, the solitary life. And yet here they are in the middle of the city, the abbot sending them out to the market or the abbot sending them out over here or there, or they have to take a message here or the abbot's not there because the abbot's involved and the abbot needs to, you know, counsel somebody. Um, the, 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 the town and the monastery, that gate would be, I'm not saying it was, you know, uh, a, a place of constant transit, but it would it would be frequently used. You know, the, these were not cloistered communities physically. The, a monastery was a, a very lively place. You know, some monasteries, most monasteries would only have a few dozen monks. Um, so it might be very small, but the largest monasteries would, would number up to 400 people. There, there's a few accounts of, of monasteries where there's three or 400 monks living there. It's a, it is a city, you know, um, and in order for a city to run itself, you need help from the outside. You need, you need people from the town who actually are employed there. They can't disturb the lives of monks. They need to respect monks, but they're necessary to the kind of the livelihood of this community. So, um, monasteries are even moving from their ideal locations. So um, a lot of monasteries, especially the ones called St. Michael, you know, monasteries that are named in honor of St. Michael are meant to be on mountaintops. You know, we think of Mont Saint-Michel, 
St. Michael's Mount. Um, lots of St. Michael's originally started on mountaintops. I'm sure there's lots in, in Greece as well. They're meant to be remote. But the thing is, that's, that's not helping the monks and it's not helping society. And so we actually have so many accounts of monks moving closer to the world, moving closer to the rivers, moving closer to the towns so that they could access the resources they need and they could provide the you know resources that they provide. So um, you know th these these are not isolated communities um, at all. They're very much kind of a part of the world. So in terms of like you know where would they be accessing goods and would would there be any kind of correspondence between monasteries? I I don't know if there would be that correspondence in terms of kind of you know, basic necessities. I, I, I think it was more kind of the, an intellectual transit or network that existed, um, you know, in, 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 on the continent. So they, they weren't like a mafia, right? Where it's just like, we'll, we'll trade between each other. And then, you know, and then people would come out and be like, you know, I'm, I live in this village and go, oh, I heard the monastery has seven. No, I, I'm not shutting down that <laughs> thesis just because it sounds so provocative, you know? So now yeah. I kind of want to, well, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll withhold my judgment a little bit. Um, I'm just not aware of, um, of of those connections. Well, we're at an hour and a half, so do, I want to be mindful of uh, Matt's time here. And so um, I think maybe what have we concluded here that uh, the lure of the monasteries, maybe in some places there was lure, but in the Frankish monasteries, they were just there and it was sort of collateral damage. <laughs> and it was- It may have been like, accidental. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Accidental. And they're just like taking where they can take. And sometimes it just happens to be a monastery. So yeah. we got a whole new thesis going on here. <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 I haven't thought of any concluding words. I, I don't think I don't think you need to change the title at all. I think, yeah, there was a lure. I, but I think the lure was. And, and, a, and a very distinct one, you know, but it was they, they had multiple, you know, um, draws. Yeah. You know, the village had its draw, the city had its draw, um, it, and it was all on their kind of uh, route. You know, it was, they, they, they didn't have to limit themselves, I don't think. You know, the, the Carolingians did not know how to deal with them, and, you know, they, they kind of put up with it. They almost acclimatized themselves to it. It was devastating and and tragic and and any intellectual discussion, you know, may not acknowledge kind of the human part of it, you know. And so I don't want to dismiss just how devastating and tragic it was. Um, but so when I say kind of they acclimatized themselves to it, I think they they did learn to kind of live with the prevalence of it, and it wasn't it wasn't inevitable. You know, it was a little more random. Um, and I think monasteries were just kind of um, were, you know, Vikings were opportunistic and they they held a, a great deal of kind of attraction to them. They had treasure. They And, and the treasure existed in many forms and, and monks might have prioritized it differently from the Vikings, but um, it was definitely there, you know? And so I don't think, I don't think monasteries would have, you know, walked by or traveled by them without, you know, seeing if if they had anything of value. I, I very much. Go ahead. Yeah, 
I very much appreciate that right off the bat, you called in a question, this focus that we have on the Viking side, or at least as Viking historians, is this idea that monasteries were were a target specifically more than other targets. Whereas the one of the reasons we we believe that is because of people like Alcuin, Simeon of Durham, you know, the chroniclers, you know, that's their initial victims, they wrote about it, but we don't, you know, going back to the literacy rates, right, uh, of the time, in Anglo-Saxon England or even in, in in France, they would have been very low. So a small village getting attacked wouldn't have featured on the map. And then the, going back to that delineation between, you know, the church being a land or the monasteries being landowners and and there's the secular landowners. And so you get a small village somewhere that, you know, they can't write it down. So we never hear about them. Right. And back to your point, Terry, that you've made, I think, every episode so far, uh, and it's a really good one, is that the Vikings were opportunists in the extreme. So being very careful of saying, yes, they did go after monasteries as a target, but can we say that they went after monasteries more than other things? I don't think we can say that. Right. I agree. All right. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. This has been great. Do you have anything that you're working on that you'd like to plug or? Oh, what am I plugging right now? I, I, I have a, um, I have a book coming out. Um, it's, just like I said, my my academic focus was accidental. This project was a little bit accidental. Um, it's a, um, a a critical edition uh, and translation that I'm doing in collaboration with a scholar named James Laprie um, in New York. Uh, but it's a critical edition of a political treatise that was written um, ostensibly for Louis the Pious um, and. Uh, it's it's little known because uh, this political treatise, Advice for Kings, um, simply because it, it appears very, very not derivative, but uh, uninspired. But we kind of reconsider this text and kind of see it having its place kind of within, you know, the, the kind of the Western tradition of political thought. So... Um, yeah, and, it, and the only connection it has to uh, my monastic interest, it was it's 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 an odd it's an odd treatise written by the abbot that I began my kind of um, studies in. So uh, an abbot of a very um, not remote monastery, but a very small monastery. Who moved? He moved his monastery from a mountain. The monastery was called Saint Michael. He moved it closer to the river. It's near Verdun, um, and uh, he wrote a variety of texts. Wrote a commentary on the Rule of Saint Benedict. Wrote commentaries on the Psalms. But he involved himself in the political life of the of the uh, empire and wrote this book of advice for Louis the Pious. So it's called the Via Regia, um, and it's being published by Dallas Text and Translation. And so that should be coming out later um, later this year. So there, I actually had something to plug. Nice. That that sounds interesting. We'll look forward to that. And then everyone when it comes out. Shoot us a link. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Shoot us a link. Yeah. And then everyone can also find you on Instagram at medievalist Matt. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want, <laughs> if, if you, yeah, if you want to know kind of the, the, the madness behind what method I have, you can, you can go to that, my random Instagram page. So. <laughs> it's always good for a laugh. Yeah. If you want to laugh, hopefully, yes. hopefully there'll be a laugh waiting for you. So yeah. Yep. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank we you. Really this was a delight. It. I love talking to, to you and thanks for the opportunity of, of maybe kind of confronting a subject that yeah. I've always kind of held at arm's length. 
So, <laughs> I know it was it was it was more enjoyable than I than I could ever have thought it would be. No, I really enjoyed it. So well, thank you very much for allowing us to force this on you like a real Viking. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, like a real Viking. <laughs> I, I, yeah. All right. Have a great afternoon. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Bye.